This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Different foods have different impacts on the environment, the people who grow them. So it's a little complicated, but to be mindful of the ingredients that you choose to eat is important too. And then also reducing waste overall, using the foods that we commonly throw away and use up most of what we buy. So to select mindfully and use what you have. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Boston, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn why you shouldn't sleep laying flat. We'll find out how to integrate back into life after COVID. We'll explore how to cook sustainably. And lastly, we'll discuss the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. But first, a little bit of business. (sighs) Does the fear of losing control keep you awake at night? Enjoy better sleep on something you can control. The Supreme Adjustable Bed by Ultramedic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life. Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. Adar Shah nurtured the rise of Ultramatic, the iconic Canadian brand of adjustable beds and maker of delightful wellness products. He received his bachelor's degree in engineering at Cornell University, graduating magna cum laude in 1999. After graduation, Adarsh joined the Monitor Group, a Cambridge-based strategy consulting company. He worked for them in Toronto, New York, and Mumbai offices on various corporate strategy, market entry, and merger and acquisition projects. He's a proud Torontonian, having lived here for over 30 years, albeit with a few adventurous years in New York in between. He's the father of two mischievous girls and caregiver to his happy, healthy, and wine-loving parents. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Thanks, Jamie. Enjoying this beautiful summer weather. Yep. We should get it while it lasts, right? Absolutely. So apparently, according to today's show, I've been doing everything wrong. And you need to tell me, you know, (laughs) what's the right way of doing it? Because, sir, I've been sleeping, laying flat, you know, my entire life. So, you know, why is it that we sleep flat and horizontally? Why are we doing (laughs) it and why is it wrong? Right. Well, well, let's start with the first thing. Are you sleeping horizontally? Yes. Yes. I do not hang from a bar. so we're <laughs> <laughs> That's, good. That's the first step. You got that one right. Yeah. You know, we know from observing other animals that there are other ways to sleep. And like you said, you know, like we don't sleep upside down. Bats do that. Yeah. And we don't sleep standing up. Horses and elephants do that. Right. And flamingos even sleep standing on one leg. Yes. Okay. So, but now all of these animals, they were physiologically designed to sleep that way. Right. We weren't. We're designed to sleep horizontal. And horses, you know, they have this system of tendons and ligaments that effectively allows their legs to lock into place when they sleep. So they can sleep standing up. And flamingos, who sleep on one leg, have five muscles that are orientated horizontally instead of vertically like ours. And so by placing their leg under their center of gravity, they can sleep with one leg and stay balanced with very little muscle force. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible how, how nature has developed these animals that way. But we need to give our muscles a break during sleep. We need to recuperate. 
And the easiest way to do that is to sleep horizontally. Mm-hmm. But once we're in a horizontal position, there's nothing physiological that says that we should sleep on a flat surface the way most of us do. Right. Okay. So are our bodies designed to sleep in a different way? Like, how are we designed? Yeah. So, you know, our bodies are not flat. Right. right? So, Although should... I have a very flat rear end, I'm just telling you, heads up. <laughs> like, I've been told I have one of those flat asses. So carry on. Go on. Well, okay. Maybe you should, you know, eat a few more burgers and fries. Maybe. And then, and that's not, that, away from those. Sir, that is not my problem. <laughs> I assure <laughs> you of that. Go well, on. Yeah. Most of us are actually quite curved. And I'm sure, you know, you are too. If you look at yourself, you know, from a side angle, yeah. we all have this kind of natural curve to our spine where it kind of curves inwards above our buttocks and then outwards as it approaches our shoulders and our neck. Mm-hmm. And then look, the reality is that we're all different. We're short, we're tall, slim, big boned. We all actually have different curves. So ideally, the best way would be to to sleep on a surface that would be curved, that would follow these natural contours of our body. But it's just very difficult to make beds that way. And and so let, let me explain to you like why it would be best for a surface to be curved. It's because we want our spine to be supported at every point. You know, and if, if our spine is supported at every point and it doesn't have to work to keep it in that position, then our muscles would be fully rested during the night. And when your muscles aren't working hard, your heart and lungs also get to rest, which is the most important thing we need when, when we sleep. Okay. Well, that makes total sense. So the better position to sleep then isn't necessarily on a flat surface. Is that the takeaway point? Exactly. Exactly. You know, if we could all sleep on a, some sort of curved surface, then that would be best. And in reality, if you if you look at the history of mattresses and beds, humankind has been struggling with this challenge for centuries, how to create a bed, a sleep surface that can contour and can shape itself. And I think the latest innovation that really transformed the industry in the last, um, you know, three decades has been memory foam. Right. And memory foam has been one of these kind of pressure-relieving foams that helps to curve and shape itself to your spine. But what's also important is that you reduce pressure on sensitive parts of your body, like oh. your hips and your shoulders. And you want to be able to shift your weight away from these parts of your bodies to parts that are physiologically designed to take the weight of your body. And that's, you know, your buttocks where we sit. In my opinion, the best way to achieve this contouring is with some sort of pressure-relieving mattress and a powered adjustable base. Right. Because with the push of a button and, you know, these bases have actuators and motors that allow the base to articulate that platform to the perfect curve to help the mattress come into the perfect position. So when we're talking about the support, are you referencing somebody that sleeps on their back? This is for a back sleep, right? Yes. And that's the best way to relieve pressure on your body. Okay. It's to sleep on your back and in what we call the zero gravity position. And this is with your feet slightly elevated, your knees bent, 
and your back slightly inclined. And this reduces the curve in, in your lower spine mm-hmm. and allows it to be properly supported by your mattress. I have a question for you, and I'm sure you get this a lot because I have not slept in an adjustable bed. And that is when you're sort of lowering your hips and raising, I guess, your feet, does the blood pool in that section of your body that is lower when you're sleeping? And is that okay? When your head is slightly elevated and your feet are slightly elevated, in fact, it helps the blood to flow back to your heart much easier. Ah, I didn't think of that. Okay. So it's incredibly beneficial for blood flow, for circulation, for people with hypertension and people with cardiac issues because it truly improves circulation. Okay. Are there other health benefits to sleeping in that position? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest benefit, of course, is to your back. It can significantly help to reduce back pain, whether it's in your shoulder or lower back. Great for people who have sciatica because it helps to shift the weight from the sensitive parts of your body to other parts of your body. And you can minutely adjust these positions with the push of a button. Only, you know, we, we say you've got a, a hundred different positions you can sleep in when you have an adjustable bed. And then the other huge benefit is that it helps people breathe easier and snore less because as you elevate your back, it puts less pressure on your lungs and opens up airwaves. And those people, you know, with sleep apnea sometimes have these devices that they wear and they can get uncomfortable. Adjustable beds help with the comfort of sleeping with those devices. Are you talking about the masks that uh, help you with the oxygen for people who have apnea? Exactly. That's right. Okay. That's right. It just helps you to get into a position where that, you know, the the straps and the devices uh, don't feel as uncomfortable as they would on a flat surface. In your experience, do most people sleep on their back? The research says that about 50% of people sleep on their back, but they don't stay there for the whole night. They're often tossing and turning. Right. And that's happening because they're feeling pressure on a particular point of their body. And by moving their body, they're relieving that pressure off that point. I was going to ask you whether, you know, people have reported back to you that whereas historically they were not necessarily a back sleeper, as a result of getting the adjustable bed, they have become one. Oh, 100%. It takes a little bit of time yeah. to adjust how you sleep. Can You know, we're, we're creatures of habit where you can't change overnight. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, with time, you start to feel the benefits. And you, you put that for me, myself, it happened when I had, and I, it, was just, it was just not going away, and I, I elevated my feet and slept on my back and consciously forced myself to sleep on my back when I would awake in the middle of the night with a little bit of pain. And over time, I started seeing that lower back pain go away because I was sleeping on my back more and with my feet elevated. For me, you know, I don't sleep on my back. And I think this is an offshoot is when I was carrying a lot of my extra weight because I was snoring. I don't snore anymore since I dropped the weight, but I used to. And it used to be particularly bad if I slept on my back. So if I was on my back and I was sleeping and snoring, my wife would give me the old elbow, which meant that I couldn't stay on my back. And I guess, you know, I think you mentioned before that this helps alleviate with snoring issues by opening the the air tracks. So I guess for people that are snoring, this may be an opportunity to get that more restful sleep then. Absolutely. And, you know, some of the beds today have this little feature called a pillow tilt, which actually allows you to independently control how much your back is elevated from how much your neck is elevated. Oh. So 
You could sleep with your back slightly elevated or completely flat, but you could elevate your neck portion of your bed and, and kind of try to figure out how to uh, minimize the snoring. Some beds even have a little button on the partner's remote, which allows you to control your, your snoring partner's uh, neck elevation. So in the middle of the night, if they're really bothering you, you can kind of <laughs> press that anti-snore device. I'm sure there's other like buttons that they'd like to push when their spouse or their partner is snoring. <laughs> <laughs> Do people report back that they toss and turn less on the adjustable beds? Is there less movement? Yes, absolutely. There's less movement. You're in the position that you that's most comfortable. It's reducing pressure and you're articulated. So it requires a little bit more effort to get into that, uh, into another position. Okay, so I'm going to be candid here. You know, I've never thought of getting an adjustable bed because, frankly, I always thought, you know, I was too young for it. Is that something that, that you hear a lot? We hear this a lot. Yeah, so, you know, that they, you know, I feel I'm too young for an adjustable bed. I'll, I'll consider one when I'm older. Well, I think wellness doesn't have an age limit or a starting point. We can all benefit from improved sleep at any age. So, you know, in, in my mind, there's no... One can start with an adjustable base at any age. And in fact, many athletes can't live without their adjustable bases. Like them, we also need to soothe sore muscles and promote better circulation to get that lactic acid out of our muscles. And you know, these bases often have a massage feature that really helps to alleviate this. Okay, so if I were inclined to look at an adjustable bed, are we looking at a price point that's much different than a traditional bed? You know what? It's shocking when we tell people uh, how much they cost, because in the past, adjustable bases used to cost, you know, upwards of $2,000, $3,000. Well, today, you know, you can get an adjustable base for as low as $500 oh, for, wow. for the basic features of head up and foot up. Absolutely. Now, they do go up to 4,000, the top-of-the-line beds with all the bells and whistles. Does that include, like, an ejector button for when your spouse is snoring? Because that would be one that, like, I'd be worried <laughs> about. But, like, James Bond, a lot of people might like that. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, and no, they don't, and they don't have ones with little pin pricks coming out of the okay, uh, fair enough. base yeah. either. But I, I have seen adjustable bases where they have an entire matrix of air channels and air blowers blowing up into the mattress to provide greater airflow into the mattress and into the bed, keeping you cooler and more comfortable. It's quite incredible. Okay, so, you know, you've made a point of saying adjustable bases, right? Like I understand would be the mechanized part of the bed. Can somebody buy one of those bases and then put their existing mattress on top? Is that doable or do they have to get a special mattress? Yeah, the, the great news is that you can. A lot of the mattresses that have been sold in the last 10 years at least have been foam-based mattresses. And almost any foam-based mattress, if you have one, can be put on an adjustable base because foam is quite flexible, as opposed to spring mattresses or pocket coil mattresses. Those are less flexible and so don't bend as easily. But I had a foam mattress. There isn't a particular type of foam mattress that lends itself to this. It's just, if you have it, then it's workable. Is that so? Almost any foam mattress will work, but that's not the end of the story. I bet you sheets uh, too, right? Like bedding would be relevant too, yeah? Bedding actually is is quite uh, flexible. Today's oh. bedding is very deep sheeted, deep pocketed, and so they, they bend very nicely and stretch very nicely with adjustable bases, so you don't have to get special sheets either. Okay. But what I would say is that 
you do want to have a pressure relieving mattress. So you want to buy, you want to make sure your foam mattress has at least two inches of pressure relieving foam on the top. And that could be memory foam, latex, or gel. Um, so that as you bend, your mattress is also bending easily and absorbing some of the pressure at the right points. Fantastic. And then the last point I'd make is you want to find a mattress. If you're going out there to look for a new mattress, look for a mattress which has uh, engineered foam cores. And what I mean by that is CNC cut cuts inside the foam core that allow the bed to bend at just the right points. These are ergonomic cuts that allow the bed to bend and extend the life of the mattress. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Jamie. And, and if anybody would like any further advice, more than happy to answer by email or by phone or stop into an Ultramatic store. We have one location at Bathurst and Lawrence, and we've just opened a new one on the border of Mississauga and Oakville. Fantastic. That was Adar Shah. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss integrating back into normal life on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Things are reopening, but are you really ready to get back to the office? Maybe the thought of going out to dinner with your girlfriends or grabbing a beer with the boys is a little more daunting than you remember it. Dr. Iman Tahiri is here to let you know that you're not alone. The doc wants to ease our minds about getting back to life before the pandemic, while also making sure our mental health is in check. With mindfulness, communication, and self-awareness, you can get back on track in no time. Dr. Iman will be sharing all the tips and tricks to ensuring a successful return to life as we know it. If you like what you hear, you can find out more of Dr. Iman's wisdom at the.dr.iman on Instagram. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Iman Tahiri was born in Iran to a family of doctors and always felt it was his calling to help people in their healing journey. He began his medical school at the age of 17 and became a general physician and later a practicing surgeon for three years. Dr. Iman created his social media presence with the intent to support people through his poetry, wisdom, and life knowledge. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you this morning? Thank you for having me. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Doing great. So, you know, we've been talking about COVID for so long on the show and you know, talking about building up immunity and how to keep safe and how to keep clean and how not to spread the disease. But I think the focus that we've had over the last couple of months is really all about integrating back into society. And that's why, you know, I, I think it's important that we have you on the show today to talk about what you're going to talk about. Okay. Okay. Let's start with why you think the pandemic has caused people to struggle so greatly. Well, when pandemic being announced on March 2020, almost no one even knew what does it mean, except healthcare experts for sure. So when there is uncertainties and many, many questions, it's definitely will cause anxiety and people terrified from things that they don't know. 
And it depends on every individual's mental capacities to deal with these massive changes that we all face. We all are experienced different levels of anxiety, panic, adjustment disorders. Right. What would you say to somebody who wants to integrate back into, you know, their old style of life and meeting with people, you know, legally and properly in a group setting, but is nervous about contracting COVID? First of all, I think it's important to that we acknowledge that this is a valid concern. This is a real post-pandemic anxiety is real. As you just said, we have been told to stay away from almost everything and everyone for the last two years. Building trust is complicated, but uh, rebuilding the broken trust is even more challenging. So my suggestion is to, as we say in, in medicine, start low and go slow. Take your time to digest the new norm. And this is a stepwise process, step by step. And of course, uh, we all need to know that we are not alone. There are experts, there are resources. If you need help, you need to call for help for sure. What are the concerns that you're hearing from patients who are starting to reintegrate into the post-pandemic world? It's an interesting point. Some of the people that I talk to, they don't even want to go back to the same lifestyle. But about the concerns that what is actually they concerned about is to trust the, the process. The question is, what if protocols change again, like many other times? They don't want to put themselves and their family in danger and you know like after maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months new protocols show up and say that, that was not right to do and as i just said uncertainty evokes anxiety so if we know that people are suffering from anxiety what are the sorts of things that they can do to help cope with that anxiety let's see if we can help some people work through it depends on cultures and beliefs and because you know Health has three dimensions, physical, mental, and spiritual. We might be very similar in physical, maybe not so similar in mental, but our spiritual dimension of health is completely different. And depends on our readiness, there are different exercises. Me, I personally am a big fan of meditation, breathing exercises, but every individual has their own preference, maybe yoga, maybe some people do, you know, jogging, running, but we all need you know, exercises for this one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what would you say to people who are looking for ways to go back to the office after working from home for so long? I mean, that's an issue for me. Like, I've worked in independently and on my own for a number of years, but now things are opening up and I'm expected to come into the station lots more. So what would you say to me? Yeah, as you just said, like, the fact of start low and go slow, we all like the question is are we ready to get into the elevator with like 10 more people again are we ready to hug to give a hug to our friends and family or buy food from the food truck in the street again it all takes time and we need to go step by step and it is important to follow the protocols okay kids are going to be going back to school in a few weeks and you know we're all concerned you know, because kids aren't so great at following protocols. What can we do to help them with their mental well-being and their physical well-being? Kids are, of course, kids are highly adaptive. They are they're adaptable. They learn, they watch, they absorb from their environment. Most of them are not even sure what is happening now because of the lack of communication. 
they know that we should wash our hands or stay away from others, but why? I believe that uh, it is important to for parents and caregivers to walk them through this process again, to reintegrate with their friends and groups and, and school again. And we need to talk to them, explain the protocols, ask them for appreciation, the concerns. This is the process. But for, regarding kids, it's important to remember that more than they hear, they watch. They see their parents and they learn. So if you are suffering from reopening anxiety or you have a lot of concern, your kids will adopt them. Okay. And like, if you know a child is particularly apprehensive or has anxieties, is there any you know additional advice or anything special that we can do for them? Like children have different approaches in, in, psych- in psychiatry and psychology. My suggestion is that always... Uh, talk to experts, especially children, psychiatry, psychologists, has another level of psychiatry, psychology. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about family gatherings? For example, in my family, there were a number of weddings that were sort of put off because, you know, they wanted to enjoy the nuptials in front of friends and family. They didn't want to do it via Zoom. They wanted to do it in person. So now a lot of people are getting invited to weddings and other sorts of family gatherings. So what are ways to prioritize sort of your health concerns without making friends and family, you know, off-put, you know? How do we navigate sort of the difficult issues? Yeah, it's an interesting question. First of all, I believe we cannot make everyone happy. You need to know what is your priorities and what is that you are comfortable with. Be clear with your level of readiness. And this is a new norm. We all know that we all know that this is not going to be back like before. There are many of our maybe previous social behaviors that are not entirely acceptable anymore. And we are on different levels of mental wellness, well being or readiness to get back to society. So we need to acknowledge and appreciate each individual's preference. And as I just said, communication is essential. You should ask about, are you ready to do this? Do you ask for consent for even, like this is it's a little bit awkward to ask for concerning child interactions, but I believe this is going to be the key for entering the new, new world, the new era of this post-pandemic i've started going to events and you know like they weren't large events they were get-togethers like barbecues and things like that but it was going to be more than 10 people i went to a party yesterday a 40 somebody's 40th birthday i've been to a barbecue with one of my poker buddies and you know my anxieties manifest in different ways and and you know i never would have dreamed of asking you know these sorts of questions before but you know i had to satisfy myself that everybody was going to be vaccinated at these events, right? Like, I understand there are people out there who are reluctant to be vaccinated, but I couldn't wrap my head around going to an event with, you know, more than a few people, knowing that some people might not be vaccinated. I'm not ready for that. I'm sure I'm not alone. Are you seeing that with your patients? Yeah, of course. The vaccine is a very controversial topic these days. And there are people who are vaccinated and don't want to talk about it. And I think educating people and, of course, Trying not to divide people into different categories is important. Being vaccinated is a personal choice and decision. And uh, before everything, you should ask, are you comfortable to talk about it or not? But I think it's important to not to divide people in vaccinated and unvaccinated. And always, uh, it's a little bit more topic for authorities 
and governments not trying not to make conflict even more than this. I agree with you to some extent. I, I actually, I think it's important that the protocols come from the top down. I actually think our governments have to do a bit of better job informing us how to treat these issues, because I think if it's left to individuals, I agree, it can be divisive. And I understand there are legal issues as well as, you know, I'm a former lawyer, but I would really appreciate our federal government and our provincial government to be much more clear about what reasonable expectations are. But I also wanted to thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. That was a video nice stuff. That was Dr. Aman Tahiri. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to cook sustainably on the tonic. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for a while. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife, Naomi. Hey, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. It was important to get you back on the show because you haven't been on in a while, if only to convince people that we're still together. So <laughs> Priorities. Exactly. So today, we're not going to talk about our marriage. We're going to talk about... Yep. You're off the hook. We're going to talk about cooking sustainably. And maybe we should start with what that actually means. Absolutely. It's one of those things that isn't really that complicated, but it's about bringing your mind to the issues and all the very specific things that you can do. So cooking sustainably can mean simpler recipes with fewer pots and pans, fewer ingredients, so if you think about it, less money to buy the ingredients, less time cooking, less energy used in the cooking process, less water and soap to clean up. Um, it's also about the ingredients, like what you choose to cook and eat, vegetarian food, which is cheaper, healthier for you, better for the planet. It gets really complicated when you start talking about foods because, you know, some people say you should cook you know, local, but then that's not always convenient or realistic. And then there are different foods have different impacts on the environment, the people who grow them. So it's a little complicated, but to be mindful of the ingredients that you choose to eat is important too. And then also reducing waste overall, like using 
the foods that we commonly throw away and use up most of what we buy. So to choose, select mindfully and use what you have. Now these ideas I got from a new book, which is from a UK writer, Anna Jones. She's written a number of cookbooks and they're all vegetarian. But this one, which is called One Pot Pan Planet, is both a cookbook with recipes, but also digging into these sort of various issues about what we can all do to cook sustainably. So the summary that I just gave is really from her book, and that's what I want to talk about today. Okay. So where do you want to start with the book? Do you want to start with recipes? What do you want? Yeah, to do? let's start with the recipes. Um, they're definitely um, recipes are interesting. As I said, all vegetarian, really globally influenced. And I liked that she recognized uh, living in London, as we live in Toronto. Um, there's a lot. There's a world of of food out there. You know, we're, we're not. It's not necessarily practical to say we're only going to eat foods that were grown. You know, in Toronto, men were used to having a lot of different cuisines. But as long as you sort of think about what you eat and recognize that it's not necessarily your food, but you want to eat it, that's okay. So some of the interesting recipes that she chose, which are all either one pot, one pan, or one tray recipes. So corn and cauliflower chowder, late summer corn and tomato curry, both dishes, one pot recipes, Mm -hmm. you know, rich coconut milk, seasonal vegetables, sound really good to me. Then you've got courgette, which is uh, zucchini, but that's what they call it. Courgette and halloumi fritters with chili and mint jam, or crispy potato, polenta, and cheese pancakes. So those are both one pan recipes. Crispy butter beans with kale, lemon, and Parmesan cheese. Baked dal, which is lentils, with tamarind glazed sweet potato, which she says is one of her favorite recipes. Baked feta with tomato and smoky peppers. We've already been making baked feta with tomatoes, as this popular TikTok recipe has shown us. It is actually very delicious. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these ideas that she has are, you know, simple, but filling enough, especially if you supplement with a salad or bread, depending on what it is. And they're all, all of these things that I just listed are just one pot. She also has some desserts, like chocolate, olive oil, and rosemary cake, and I really like how those three flavors go together. And then a strawberry and labna semifredo. So labna is is yogurt, and I think that would be really good with the sweet strawberries and the tangy yogurt. Sounds good, the recipes. Yeah, it does. Okay, so those are all recipes from her book, but there are sort of like broader concepts on sort of being sustainable. For example cooking with one ingredient, for example, and, and what that actually means. Right. So one, uh, you know, one sort of set of ideas she has is what do you do if you have a little bit of broccoli or, you know, you really like broccoli. So here's some ideas for some quick broccoli dishes or, you know, goes through all the different kinds of vegetables. You know, one thing that caught my eye was uh, baked potatoes because, you know, we often do eat baked potatoes, but then, you know, we have one topping for the baked potatoes and she comes up with a bunch of ideas. Baked potatoes with caper and cornichons. Not sure that I like that one. Yeah. homemade chili beans slaw leeks with mustard and cheese lemony greens so just like you know if you like baked potatoes or you like carrots or you like broccoli or tomatoes here's some ideas and you can make a lot of it or a little of it depending on how much of the vegetable you use so helping to reduce waste and give you some new ideas about how to use this particular ingredient that you like okay And I understand another approach she takes is sort of cooking quick dishes, yeah? Exactly. This cookbook was, as she says at the beginning, it was started in 2018, but then finished when we were all in the pandemic. And even though some people had 
extra time to cook, everybody also got a little bit sick of cooking. And so sometimes just want a quick dinner. And so some interesting recipes there, peanut cucumber noodles, uh, you cut up the vegetables, you cook the noodles, you make the peanut sauce while the noodles are cooking, and there's your supper, you know, with ingredients that you probably already have in your pantry. Also, greens and caramelized tofu with a vegetarian exo sauce, which is a Chinese chili sauce, which adds a lot of flavor to dishes. So these are all, like, very quick, uh, healthy, and really delicious-sounding dishes that she gave ideas. This is just a couple suggestions. Yeah, and I I think to some extent, you know, you and I are already doing this. Like, certainly we have, like, a baked tofu probably once a week or once every couple of weeks. And certainly, you know, a quick pasta dish or a quick noodle dish is probably, we probably have that once a week at least, right? Yes, I did think when I when I was trying to put my mind to one pot or one pan dishes, that I'm not sure we're so good at. No, we are not. We often, <laughs> we often use a bunch of different dishes. And, you know, if I actually put my mind to how can I reduce the number of cooking utensils and dishes, that, that might be quite useful. Yeah, because I think we're focusing on, on, like, the food taste. I suppose if you shifted your priorities and you were more focused on cooking with one pot, you could do it. I mean, the meal itself might suffer a bit, but who knows? I, I don't know. It might. You know, it just takes a little, um, just a change in the way you're doing things. I don't know. It's good to actually think about it because I don't, I just think about whether I feel like doing more dishes as opposed to the impact of doing more dishes. Yeah. Well, I'm the one who does the dishes. Uh, (laughs) So I should turn my mind to it. No, that's not true. You do the dishes. I thought we weren't talking about our marriage today. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So let's, let's shift gears and talk about some of the tips that she gives for sustainable food prep, et cetera. Yeah, a lot of good ideas. So one which probably uh, a lot of people know, which is, you know, the health benefits of vegetarian foods, particularly she focuses on protein because that's often a concern is how am I going to get enough protein? So, you know, she highlights vegetarian foods that do have a lot of protein like tofu, yogurt, nuts, seeds, grains, beans, and certain uh, vegetables which have a fair bit of protein too. So, you know, you can get your protein if you're a vegetarian. Again, you just have to put your mind to it. So you're not having, you know, plain pasta with tomatoes, you know, you need to make sure you get your protein so that you're eating healthily. Another idea, how to store food, you know, where to store it so you don't waste it in the fridge, you know, which drawer is better for which vegetables and not stuffing things to the back of the fridge, which we absolutely do. You know, taking an inventory of what's in your cupboard before you go shopping so that you don't buy something that you already have and then have to use up or not, you know, end up getting thrown out. One thing, you know, how to use scraps for food and cleaners, that I always find is a little bit cutesy because, you know, the idea of creating cleaner out of orange peels might be a good one, but I don't know that I feel like spending my time doing that, even though it might be a very nice cleaner. But still, some people would want to do that, and that information is there. What I did, you know, think was helpful was a list of the uh, the most wasted foods and how to avoid this. If you think about that, bread, right? Yeah. Things that people often throw out, stale bread, you know, stale baked goods, milk that is still dated, bagged salad, cheese, fruit, you know, that's starting to get soft, leftovers that don't get eaten. And so she has some ideas about, you know, what do you do? Make breadcrumbs freeze it, you know, often use it for cooking, you know, use it for soup, 
freeze even you know like for example she said freeze bagged salad if it's if, you know if you don't think you're going to eat it then freeze it you can't defrost and turn it into salad but you could turn it into something cooked right? right don't just throw it out you can make pesto you can make smoothies you know if you've got leftover rice make fried rice keep the parmesan rinds and put them in soup which we do so just, you know, thinking about the leftovers so you don't throw them out and just buy more stuff is a good idea. Also, shopping. You know, thinking about the kind of shopping you do. Do you go shopping once a week, once a month? You know, do you like to cook fresh every day and not be pinned down to a plan or are you a real planner? And what you can do in either case to make sure that you're buying what you need and not wasting food, you know. So if you like to choose where you're going to meet, what you're going to eat every day, then just don't buy too much right. because you're not going to use it. I feel like we're pretty good at this. I think we plan out our weeks pretty well. We do. I mean, sometimes we buy a lot of something and then we're eating it for a long time and we don't really want to, but, you know, we, we are pretty good. I think so. And then the last couple of things, you know, how to live with less plastic, which I think people are quite mindful of now. Like it's, you know, everybody's trying to reduce the amount of packaging and plastic, like not using bottled water and all that. And certain foods, the impact of buying them, you know, avocados, quinoa, coffee, chocolate, you know, the harmful chemicals that hurt the farmers and the people who are picking the crops. You know, when something gets very popular here and then the price goes up and the people who actually live on the stuff can't afford it. So all those things to be thoughtful about when you're choosing what to buy or not to buy. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. That was Naomi Bassin. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging and the Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Recently, brothers running a successful family business gave me a call. They've been hearing my commercials for over a year. Why did they finally phone me? Because they had incompletions. Shareholder agreement not done. Wills not done. Tax planning not done. Life insurance for their business and families not done. Most people have incompletions. We complete them. Call me. I'm Mark Halpern, wealthinsurance.com. Wealthinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Parminda Reyna is a professor in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University and scientific director of the McMaster Institute for Research on Aging. He specializes in the epidemiology of aging with emphasis on developing the interdisciplinary field of geroscience to understand the processes of aging from cell to society. 
He holds a Canada Research Chair in Geroscience and Raymond and Margaret Labarge Chair in Research and Knowledge Application for Optimal Aging. He is the lead investigator on the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, one of the largest and most comprehensive studies of aging in the world. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? Great. Thank you very much. So the longitudinal study is why we have you on the show today. Perhaps you can explain to the listeners what a longitudinal study is and why in particular this study is so important. Right. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm delighted to share what we are doing with the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. Uh, Basically, longitudinal study means that we select a group of people and we follow them over time to see what happens to their health and well-being. And the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging was implemented or started in 2011, and we are going to continue to follow each and every one who was selected into the study. And individuals who were selected into the study were selected randomly, and they will be followed until 2033. So we contact them every three years, we collect data from them every three years, And then we compile data and we then use those data to answer some important questions that shows us how people are aging, why some people are aging well and others are not, what kind of diseases, what type of risk factors that might emerge in some populations but not in other other populations. So this is a way to gather information that can come close to describing that something might be linked to a particular outcome or a disease that we are interested in pursuing. So that's what the Canadian Longitudinal Study on on Aging is trying to do. It is a study of 50,000 women and men across Canada on all 10 provinces. And when we started this study in 2011, our criteria for selecting people into the study was that they had to be as young as 45, and the oldest person we picked was 85. So it was between 45 and 85 at the baseline when we started. The idea behind that was, and these all these individuals had to be living in the community. And these individuals were selected that way. We wanted to understand the baby boomers, how they will age, and we also wanted to have sense of the people who are already seniors, how they will age, how long they're going to live, what are the factors that determine longevity, And that's what we have been doing since 2011. So the questions that you're asking the participants in the study, are they the same questions every three years, or does the data collection change with each three years? So we have a core set of data collection that we started with. That remains the same every three years. But obviously, science progresses, new ideas come up. We do introduce new types of questions or assessments that we want to introduce and then study them over time. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So we are collecting data on all aspects of aging process because aging is just not a biological issue or a clinical issue. It is a social, psychological, and economic. So we are collecting data that focuses on social aspects of aging, psychological aspects of aging, biological, clinic, clinical, environmental, as well as uh, socioeconomic aspects of aging. So core set of questions that we ask or core set of assessments we do, they remain exactly the same and repeated every three years. But 
For example, we just recently wanted to see uh, assess people's ability to move around in the community. Mm -hmm. So using some technology or wearable devices to assess people's mobility, especially related to COVID, and I'll come back to that a little later, that it has become really important how people move around in their community determines whether they're going to be able to remain in their home or they will end up in an institutionalized setting. So we just recently, uh, in July this year, introduced a whole set of data collection using wearable technology that will be used going forward for the rest of the time that this study will continue. So you mentioned assessments in addition to questions. Are there any medical procedures or invasive? Like, are you taking blood or... Yes. Yes, we do. So maybe I'll step back a bit and give you a bit of overview. So I said we have 50,000 people. 20,000 of those 50,000 people are a random sample of the Canadian population in this age group, 45 to 85, who are living in the 10 provinces. And on those people, we only collect data using questionnaires. And there is a remaining 30,000 that are coming from 11 sites across Canada, Victoria, Vancouver, Surrey, Calgary, Winnipeg, Hamilton, Ottawa, Montreal, Sherbrooke, Halifax, and St. John's, uh, Newfoundland. On these people, we go to their homes. We collect the same set of questionnaire-based data that we collect in in our 20,000 people. But in addition to them, that we bring them to a data collection site that we built across the country where we will do assessments like they're doing a scan of their body to look at their bone density, look at their fat composition or body composition. We do hearing tests. We do a fairly detailed cognitive testing on people. We take blood pressure. We do spirometry, which sort of measures the lung function. We look at ultrasounds of people's artery, ECG. We make people walk and balance, do balance tests, which we call performance testing. We take images of their eyes. And then we also take blood and urine sample, which are stored for future analysis. And that is all repeated every three years. Wow. So recently, we've gone through COVID. Has there been any sort of changes to the study which has taken COVID into account? And is there any information that we've gotten from the study that has helped us understand how, you know, the aging population is dealing with COVID from a health perspective? Yes, uh, as everybody knows that in March 2020, we had to suspend our data collection because we couldn't see people face-to-face. So we pivoted to doing telephone interviews and collected as much data we could. But we also implemented a COVID questionnaire-based study where we followed people for almost nine months during the initial lockdown and the subsequent lockdowns. And the data from that's done on 28,000 people. And those people are, we are generating data. For example, we have data that came out And it's available on our website. There is a COVID portal that gives you some basic information about what we saw. That we looked at the people's hesitancy around vaccination. So that's an important data that we generated that was relevant to the work that Public Health Agency of Canada is doing. We also looked at uh, what are the consequences of mental health, people who were alone in their own houses, couldn't go out, couldn't see their family members, and we have a publication coming out of that. Uh, we are also looking at, and this is where some something like CLSA having that type of study 
allows us to now see the people in the community who got mild to moderate infection but didn't get hospitalized from COVID, how is their health impacted going forward? So we are seeing eight months later, people who were, had a mild to moderate infection are also showing that their ability to walk around, their function has been compromised. They haven't gone back to their pre-COVID status of able to move around, be mobile, be functional. So this is providing a rich data onto understanding what are going to be the consequences of COVID infection on older people as they move forward. And can anybody access this information? Like, I, I tried to go on the site and I could see there was some information there. Is everything being made public or, or do you have to have special access? No. As the, as the analyses are being done, papers are being written, they will be all available on our website. They will be in public domain. And we have a basic portal that is there that gives you a sense of what the basic numbers look like because we are doing this all in real time, right? Yeah. So we are trying to get as much information out in the hands of the people. We are also looking at issues of impact of loneliness and social isolation on older people during the COVID. What really has impacted people in low-income versus high-income groups? Are they disproportionately affected by COVID lockdowns, public health measures that are important to have in this country? But it has had some consequences for specific populations. So as this information comes out, does your office sort of disseminate that into a report? Or do others sort of take that data and then from that data develop their own theories and, and, and reporting? So there's multitudes of ways. So the data that we collect with the consent of our participants who participate in the study is available to all researchers to access and analyze and answer specific questions. And we built it as a platform. This study doesn't belong to Pramindarena. It belongs to all researchers in this country and globally because we want the science to come out in real time. So people are publishing we identify publications that are important, and we try to do our own uh, dissemination of information through our uh, communications office uh, in Hamilton. But much of this information is going to be available either on our website or through uh, medical journals where these papers are being published. We also did a baseline, like three years ago, a report from the CLSA data, and we will do probably another one another six to eight months where we compile all this information so public can go and see what has come out of this study. So if if a listener wanted to to read some of the information, which website should they go to? The best, they can go to our CLSA website and they can contact our uh, communication office if they can't find something on the website and we can help them find that information for them. What is the name of the website? Where should they go? Oh, this is uh, www. CLSA-ELCV.ca. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was really interesting. Great. Thank you very much for having me there. We'd love to have you back again. Sure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Adar Shah, Dr. Iman Tahiri, Naomi Bassan, and Dr. Parminda Reina. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. 
The July-August issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.